0: This is Finnerin's Wake, hosted by yours truly, Daniel Ethan Finnerin. Welcome back to another episode of Finnerin's Wake. Today, we'll be thinking about and diving into the two strongest arguments against abortion the ticklish topic indeed the most ticklish of topics with which perhaps recklessly i chose to begin this dangerous series but we shall sail forth steering for the deep waters only for as the great walt whitman assures us we are bound to go where mariners haven't yet dared go to discover new lands of honesty on which to alight New realms of truth in which to plant our conquering flag. This is the second part of a two part series examining, from both sides, the issue of abortion, that most delicate subject for whose safe handling a soft touch and an open mind are needed. I urge you, before continuing on and listening to this episode, to visit episode one of Ticklish Topics, by which the groundwork for this, its sequel, has been carefully laid. I mentioned in the previous episode that the issue of abortion has been, for the better part of the last half-century or so, simmering. No issue in the culture has been so hotly politically contentious, nor so morally turbulent and troubling as that of abortion. And yet, ever since the decision put forth by the Supreme Court in 1973, when it struck down in Roe v. Wade, Texas's restrictive abortion law, and created at the federal level the right of a woman to procure an abortion in her first trimester of pregnancy, it has agitated the country just beneath the threshold of a boil. Well, now, that boil is apt to overflow its brim. ago, in unceremonious, unprecedented, and, above all, unlawful fashion, the court's forthcoming decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked. By whom? We still haven't a clue. But according to those in the know, or those merely inclined to guess, The culprit is supposed to be someone from the left. She's said to be a clerk in the office of Justice Sotomayor, a youthful activist, perhaps, to whom the repercussions of a leak would be less grave than the threat to a country that no longer recognizes Roe. That being said, the leak, while an egregious affront to the independence of our judicial branch, isn't our chief interest this episode. Our chief interest, rather, is that which was leaked. The decision of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Now, the decision, written by Justice Samuel Alito, is actually quite tame. The language is crisp, candid, and refreshingly straightforward. Barren, to everyone's relief, of all the floral and metaphysical talk of penumbras and emanations seen in Griswold v. Connecticut, and one's uh, right to define his own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, <laughs> which is the puzzling line penned by Justice Kennedy in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Alito, less poetic than his Shakespearean predecessors, avoids this type of language altogether, focusing instead on the black and white question from a strictly constitutional perspective. Does the Constitution, he asks, confer a right to privacy under which, without any interference by the state, a woman can access an abortion? Or more basic even than that, does our Constitution grant a right to abortion at all? In a word, no. Despite every squinting effort, every sweeping pass of the Progressive's fine-toothed comb, no such right is to be found in the Constitution. Trust me, I've looked, as have men and women far more intelligent scholarly and discerning than I. All efforts to locate it have been vain. The document is, for all intents and purposes, silent on the matter. According to Alito, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, end quote. Again, a pronouncement of fact against which few honest scholars would, from a constitutional standpoint, argue. He went on, in his opening remarks, to declare that it's, quote, time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. It must be resolved democratically in the states. End quote. Alito continues, The Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion, and therefore those who claim that it protects such a right must show that the right is somehow implicit in the constitutional text. Roe, however, was remarkably loose in its treatment of the constitutional text. It held that the abortion right, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, is part of a right to privacy, which is also not mentioned. (laughs) Yikes. To be clear, neither the right to an abortion nor the right to privacy is explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, of which the Supreme Court is supposed to be the last and uh, infallible interpreter. So, given that uncomfortable omission twice over, Where does that leave us? What are we, the citizens of a free and democratic society, to do? Well, we're to act freely and democratically. What else? Alito describes to us this bleak, unfriendly, dystopian, democratic future toward which, whether we like it or not, we'll soon be heading. In some states, he says voters may believe that the abortion rights should be more extensive than the right that Roe recognized. Well, perhaps, for example, New York will go ahead and enshrine an already lenient policy to allow abortion up until the moment of birth. Or, perhaps, as former Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia once suggested, the child, having miraculously survived an abortion attempt, will be, quote, kept, comfortable in the neonatal care unit before being summarily dispatched. That certainly would be more extensive than the right recognized currently by Roe. Now, voters in other states, Alito then says, may wish to impose tight restrictions based on their belief that abortion destroys unborn human beings. Perhaps Mississippi whose restrictive law is the one being challenged in this case, will confine abortions to the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. This, hewing to a more conservative track will prohibit all abortions after the detection of a fetal heartbeat, to which modern ultrasound machines are sensitive at about six weeks. Alito then concludes, quote, Our nation's historical understanding of ordered liberty does not prevent the people's elected representatives from deciding how abortion should be regulated we thus return the power to weigh those arguments to the people and their elected representatives there you have it it will no longer be a federal but a state matter and yet so much confusion still clouds the issue. Through which, by way of this episode, I hope to pierce a few rays of clarifying light. Now that the power has been returned to the states, to the legislatures, to the representatives, and, through them, to us, the people, with whom sovereignty ultimately lies, We can no longer afford to be ignorant. No, we must be equipped with the strongest arguments either in favor of or against abortion. Now, in part one of ticklish topics, I laid out the three strongest arguments for abortion. In this episode, part two, I'll approach the issue from the other side by laying out the two strongest arguments against abortion. I urge you, listen to both, weigh their arguments, examine the issues, consult your conscience, and above all, be informed. Our Republic depends on it. And with that, I give you the two strongest arguments against abortion. Strongest, perhaps, of all arguments against the practice of abortion is that to which the esteemed American philosopher Don Marquis first gave voice. Marquis, professor emeritus in the philosophy department at the University of Kansas, published in 1989 in the Journal of Philosophy an article to which countless scholars and no small number of laypeople have, through the decades, continually and profitably returned. The article, entitled Why Abortion is Immoral, has been reprinted over 80 times, an unmistakable testament to the strength of its logic, the novelty of its conception, the accessibility of its language and, most important of all, the persuasiveness of its conclusion. Of course, one knows, with but a glance at the essay's title, precisely where the aged professor stands. And yet, given that, he's overbrimmed with curiosity to know exactly how Marquis arrives at his provocative endpoint. To spare you the effort of reading it, Though I encourage you to do just that, I'll summarize Marquis's argument. I'll do so as briefly as this complicated, delicate topic will allow. The moral permissibility of abortion, Marquis states, quote, stands or falls on whether or not a fetus is the sort of being whose life it is seriously wrong to end, end quote. Well, is it this sort of being? This is the pivotal question on which everything hinges. If the fetus, the temporary occupant of the womb, is not the sort of being whose life it is seriously wrong to end, well, then we have our answer. Morally, it's no more abhorrent to kill a fetus than it is to squash a beetle, to fumigate a fly. But if he is the sort of being whose life it is seriously wrong to end, and there attends to his termination not only a passing sense of wrongness, but a lingering weight of iniquity and moral injustice, we ought to reconsider the action on which we are prepared to bestow our popular democratic blessing, the act of abortion. Marquis takes an ingenious next step. He says that, quote, when I am killed, I'm deprived both of what I now value, which would have been part of my future personal life, but also what i would come to value therefore when i die i am deprived of all of the value of my future End quote. now he concludes that quote, what makes killing any adult human being seriously wrong is the loss of his future And here we have the nail on which Marquis's argument is hung. In simple language, befitting a Midwest philosopher from the unadorned plains of the fly-over-flatlands of our nation's interior, he calls it the future-like-ours theory. He says, That the primary wrong-making feature of a killing is the loss to the victim of the value of its future has obvious consequences for the ethics of abortion. The future of a standard fetus includes a set of experiences, projects, activities, and such which are identical with the futures of adult human beings and are identical with the futures of young children. Marquis is explicit in his avoidance of an argument from personhood. He does not, as many do, try to prove the personhood of the fetus. He's wise not to, for can we really know at what gestational age the gift of personhood is conferred? Is the fetus a person at conception, when the quickening occurs, in the middle of the third trimester, perhaps? Or as he exits the birth canal. It's difficult to say. Well, in acknowledgement of that difficulty, Marquis nimbly evades it. To Marquis, the category that's morally central to this analysis is the category of having a valuable future like ours. It is not the category of personhood. This Moral controversy, he says, is settled by acknowledging the fetus's inviolable property, its unconditional right to have a future like ours. That, to conclude, explains abortion's immorality. You are depriving a being, a being granted, of whose current claim to personhood you are admittedly uncertain, of a future like Ours, You are depriving him of the opportunity to listen to sublime music, to read great literature, to fall in love, to suffer loss, to smell a gardenia, to taste a spoonful of honey, to feel the rush of salt water on his skin. By what justification can you deprive him of this future? Does that make sense? I think of Marquis's argument in its simplest form, as one from temporality, as one from time. The fetus, though at present underdeveloped, is a being in time, and has every right, nine months, nine years, or nine decades hence, to enjoy a future like ours. Of this he should not be deprived. Moving from the learned argument of a genuine philosopher, Don Marquis, to the half-baked logic of a philosopher faster, me, I present to you a slightly weaker argument against abortion, but not one that should go unmentioned. I call it the difference in degree argument by my own doing, by the fertility of my own mind and the richness of my own intellectual soil. (laughs) I kid. I created this argument. As a man, sadly, ideas are the only things to which I can give life. That women can beget not only them, and usually better ones, but little tiny human beings, is a power before which I can't but stand in awe. So, with that, whatever you think of the following argument, direct your criticism of it toward me, your lowly podcaster and faithful friend. Right. My argument requires an understanding of two terms. The first, a difference in kind. And the second, a difference in degree. Again, a difference in kind and a difference in degree. Simple. The easiest way to understand these two terms is through the example of geometry. (laughs) Don't worry, don't worry. This will be painless. For a difference in degree, imagine you have, drawn before you, two lines of unequal length. Let's say both are drawn in black ink. Both share the same thickness or diameter. Both are essentially the same, but accidentally different, that difference being their length. One is longer, the other shorter. Good. Now, for a difference in kind, imagine you have scribbled on a new piece of paper two shapes a circle and a square. One, the square, has internal angles, all of them right adding up to 360 degrees. The other, the circle, has no angles whatsoever. The moment it did have an angle would be the very moment at which it ceased to be a circle. Okay, there's a difference in degree and there's a difference in kind. Got it. Now, we're going to apply these terms to humans let's accept the premise that humans and non-human animals, you and your dog, for example, are different in kind. It's important to note that this isn't a premise over which there's universal agreement. Charles Darwin, for example, arguing from genetic continuity and descent to a common forebear, would assert that humans and non-human animals are different in degree, merely. A thinker like Descartes, on the other hand, and most philosophers in religious traditions, would disagree. They would point to the peculiarity or the divinity of man as a feature by which, in relation to other creatures, he's fundamentally distinguished. We're going to accept, for the purposes of this argument, that man, distinct from all animals, is uniquely stamped. In the words of Aristotle, he's endowed with a rational soul to which he owes his fantastic ability to create artistically, to think discursively, and to associate politically. These attributes are unshared by non human animals, however smart and cuddly they may appear to be. So humans and non human animals, you and your dog, are different in kind. What about you and your neighbor? doubtless, many accidental differences separate you. His height, weight, comeliness, athleticism, age, and intelligence might surpass your own. But these are, just to borrow from my geometric example, differences in degree. He is a longer line, a taller line, not a completely different shape. Consider the following. On one side, you have a man, 29 years of age, at the pinnacle of health. He suffers no affliction, be it physical or mental, and is completely independent. On the other side, take a man at the end of his life. He's 89 years of age, and in a state of crumbling senescence. He hasn't the bursting physical vigor of the young man, nor his intellectual acuity. Perhaps his cognitive faculties are failing, and he's reliant on supplemental oxygen to breathe. Though diminished in many ways, dependent on external assistance for the continuation of his survival, he's still only different from the young man by degree. That degree being time. Consider, now, a third person— this one existing at the other end of life's timeline. The unborn child, maturing to ripeness in the fluid cradle of his mother's womb. Is he different from the man of twenty-nine in degree or kind? In what way is he different from the ailing elderly man? This argument holds that the unborn child is different in degree. Not kind. Again, employing our example of geometry, it's not that we, as mature humans, are circles and the fetuses out of which we once all developed are squares. Were this the case, once brought to term, reared, and given the opportunity to grow, the child would never succeed in becoming fully human, as a square never succeeds in becoming a circle. No matter how many angles are added to it, it would remain essentially different. An unborn child, rather, is more like a shorter line held up against a longer. He is different, in degree, from that which is longer, namely you, the fully formed and functional adult. Given enough time, nurturing, and care, He has all the potential to lengthen and grow. Finally, we arrive at the final point of this, my argument. Unlike that of Professor Marquis, this one accepts the fetus's personhood. That's the fundamental difference. Because the unborn child is rather different in degree than in kind from the adult, He shares with his more mature fellow the essence of personhood. Both are kindled by the same divine spark of humanity. Both have an inviolable dignity on which no one can impinge. Thus, both are deserving of protections to which all humans have an inborn right. These are not protections to which cows and dogs, which are different in kind from humans, Have a claim. I apologize if that's all a bit complex. It it does come from my scattered brain. Uh, Let me summarize it as simply as I can. Humans are a distinct class of animal, a unique type of being. We are, when compared to non human animals, different in kind. Owing to this difference, humans have rights to which beasts lack a claim. Chief among these rights is the right to have one's human dignity recognized and honored. This basic human dignity is fixed to us from the very start of life till its end. The elderly man, dependent on external aids for the continuation of his life, enjoys this dignity no more than the incipient child in the womb, also dependent on an external aid. If the old man or the fetus were different from the healthy man in kind, they might be deemed subhuman, and therefore undeserving of this dignity. They are not. They are different only in degree, and the lives of both must be valued and protected as such. I do hope that makes sense. Now let's recapitulate all that's been said. To the three strongest arguments made for abortion, for whose enumeration and analyses I refer you to part one of this series, I've responded with two, the two strongest arguments I think, against abortion. They are, from strongest to weakest, the future-like-ours-theory argument, presented by ethicist Don Marquis, and the difference-in-degree argument, presented by yours truly. After an honest and thorough examination of this topic, I can think of no better arguments than these. You'll note, I was exceedingly careful, in my presentation development of these arguments, not to invoke religion. I come close to doing so when I speak of the inviolable dignity of human beings and our inherent sanctity of life, but, ultimately, these things can be justified on secular grounds. Roe versus Wade will, in all likelihood, be overturned in the coming weeks after which the power to legislate abortion will be returned to the states. As a citizen of a state, your voice will determine precisely what that legislation says. The goal of these two episodes, and more generally this ticklish topics series, is to equip you with the arguments with which to make yourself heard. If you enjoyed this episode, And how could you not? (laughs) Please, leave a five-star rating, subscribe to this channel, and share it with friends. Grab dinner, listen to it together, and then, if you dare, engage each other in civil debate. I can't emphasize this enough. That debate must be civil. No throwing of food at one another. Now, I laid out five arguments. Three for, two against. With which do you agree? By which was your opinion changed? Until next time, fare thee well, from Finneran's Wake do believe a rock. Don't believe a shout. Don't believe a shout. Udeno. Udeno. shout, believer, shout. Udeno. Udeno.